The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Study of the book of Revelation. We will pick that up after the new year with a goal to finish it by the end of April with appropriate breaks here and there. But we wanted to go through this study because we want to remind you about the Old Testament prophecies of what is happening within the time of Jesus coming. And last week, we looked briefly at Genesis chapter 3 and the, the first gospel, the, the proton euangelion, the first gospel that came, that Jesus said he would crush the head of the serpent. He would crush the head of the serpent. He would crush Satan's ploy to try to take away the gospel power that comes from the plan of God. And I want you to know that before the foundation of the world, God has always had a plan. He's not haphazardly putting it together sometimes as we do with our plans. His plan has always been to glorify his name and bring sinners such as us to him through the death and only through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. So this morning, we're going to look at a, a passage that is sort of familiar, at least one verse of it is, but we need to know the context. And we're going to look at the virgin birth this morning, a topic that we affirm so highly, but often is lost in translation. So if you're able to stand this morning, would you join us in reading Isaiah 7, excuse me, down to verse 14, Isaiah 7, down to verse 14. And I want to warn you, you will look and... and you will see the first really 10 to 12 verses and say, what in the world does this have to do with the virgin birth? And in fact, I'm going to say most everything it does. So as you hear these words this morning, may God bless you as you hear it, and may he use it in our lives to live out for his glory. Isaiah 7 down to verse 14. It says in the ESV, in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ramalia, excuse me, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. So when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, time out for a second, Ephraim and Israel are going to be uh, called the same thing here, just so you know. Syria is in league with Ephraim or Israel. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as a wind shakes a forest full of trees. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jehoshabob, your son, to the end of the conduit at the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your hearts be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin of Syria and the son of Ramaliai, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramaliai had devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it. For ourselves, and set up son of Tabiel as king and in the midst of it. And thus says the Lord, verse 7, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the Syria is of Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered and will from being a people. And verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. Ramaliah. And if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. That's a good underlined sentence if you need one right there. Verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord and of the Lord your God and let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. 
And he said, hear then this, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, and I know you know this verse, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What do all those weird names that you're not going to name your kids have to do with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? That's what we want to talk about today. Because if you miss this, you will miss not only what you believe, but you will miss the wonder, once again, of what it means that God became man. Will you bow your heads with me this morning? Let's go before our Lord. Fathers, we come to you. We are grateful that you give us these passages that are hard on the surface to point us to deeper realities that were once and for all fulfilled within your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we trudge through ancient history for a moment, may you apply it not only to what you did some 2,000 years ago, but what you are continuing to do by your Spirit for all those who believe in you. And that is that we would be forgiven of our sins, we'd come from the darkness to the light, and that, Father, we would be your children by faith in Christ. But it started, Father, with that woman, born of a virgin that your son was, and born under the law at just the right time. All these foretelling prophecies point to that end. We pray these things today to honor you. Thank you for each one here, Lord. We're here for you. We want to grow. We want to know you and know each other better. We pray this and ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, in today's world, there is a buzzword that a lot of people talk about. It's called evangelicals. If you've heard that, especially around these times of the year, often evangelicals are talked about as a voting block for people who are trying to get their candidate to get a certain group of people to vote for them. But traditionally, an evangelical is someone who basically believed everything that this Bible says and everything that it doesn't say, we would say, yeah, we don't necessarily believe that. An evangelical Christian is someone who affirms that Jesus is who he says he is. The Bible is God's word. And everything that God says about himself in the word is sufficient for all faith and practice. But when it comes to the virgin birth, we are sometimes, as one person put it, we are like those who can say we are evangelicals and recite all the creeds about the Bible, but behind our hands we look like this guy. We hold up our hands and say, maybe that virgin birth thing isn't all so true. I mean, honestly, if you were to ask most Christians, do you believe that a woman gave birth to a son without having relations with a man, most people would look at you crazy. Now, if you're a Star Wars fan or something like that, we know in the, the sci-fi trilogies and all that, it happens in science fiction. But really, if you ask most Christians, can you affirm that for us and our salvation, he came down from heaven, born of a virgin, most people would say yes, but they would take their fingers like this behind their back because they're not so sure that's true. In fact, if you believe the stats, according to Barna, that over 65% of professing Christians, evangelicals, quote-unquote, do not believe in the virgin birth as it is listed in Scripture today. That's scary, guys. Because if you deny this, and we'll get there in a moment, you're denying so much more than just a virgin birth. You're denying the clear essence of everything that we believe. And I want to just ask you today, it is Christmas Eve, and we have carols, we have decorations, we have the cool red shirts and green shirts, but do we truly believe in this profound aspect of the Christian faith? The virgin birth, the virgin birth, amidst all the commercialized holiday tunes and festive decorations, the danger lies in treating what we're going to talk about today as just background noise, as something that we believe and do, almost just like going through autopilot 
at a Christmas Eve service and not really affirming what it says. And so you may utter the word virgin during this festive season, and you may yawn at the very place when we sing Silent Night, but do you actually believe it? I mean, really, do you actually believe it? Because Luke 135 that was read earlier, 135 through 38 says this, the angel answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And your relative Elizabeth is also pregnant. But notice what verse 37 says, nothing is impossible with God. Look, concerning the virgin birth, Jesus Christ, this is a subject of most importance. It's not an incidental thing, it's a fundamental thing. Either you believe it or you don't. It's a very foundation upon which that cross that we talk so much about is built upon. It's the foundation on which the resurrection is built upon. As we celebrate with all the poinsettias and lights and decorations, we have to remember the fact that to deny the virgin birth is to deny Christ himself. In fact, that's our big idea today. You you define the virgin birth and you'll lose your mind, but you deny the virgin birth and you will lose your soul. We're not saved by the virgin birth, but we are not not saved without the virgin birth. Jesus had to come as he did, born of a virgin, sinless as he was, as prophesied as he was to be, because he died upon that cross in place of sinners. The virgin birth is one of the most important links in the chain of salvation. In the virgin birth, eternal deity is joined to, to humanity. But because it was a virgin birth, it wasn't stained by the stain of Adam's sin like you and I are when we're born into this world. He was truly God, and he was truly man. Because of the virgin birth, Jesus isn't like a half and half you buy at the dairy part of the store, where it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. He's not like the two-in-one conditioner and shampoo mixed together. Because of the virgin birth, Jesus was able to live a perfect life and lay it down as a perfect sacrifice for your sin and for mine. The virgin birth is so important that to deny it is to deny his sinlessness, is to deny his holiness, is to deny his act of obedience and to deny his substitutionary atonement. And can I take that just a step further for a second? If you deny, apparently like 65% of evangelicals do with your fingers behind your back, the virgin birth, you could be labeled a heretic, an apostate, or even worse, an unbeliever. Because the Bible says it. Therefore, we believe it, not just simply because it's written, but we have come to be truth about it. It is a non-negotiable truth. I hope that frames it for you. But to get there, we need to walk through three things today, three questions that are going to frame our section, and we'll put these up as we go through them. But the, the, the broad overview is this, is that we're going to ask, what's the history? That's number one. We'll have these up on the screen. You don't need to write them down right now, but is it real? And why is it important? What's the history? Is it real? And why is it important? Let's start with number one. And this is going to require your Bible because we're going to be jumping around here. But you notice, as we read Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 1, that there were a few names that were mentioned here. There was Ahaz, there was uh, Reason, the king of Syria, and there was Pekah, the other guy there. And I want to remind you of a little history as we go through. The historical context is, is that the reign of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, was happening in the southern kingdom of Israel. Remember, after Solomon became king, Israel split into two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom went by Judah, the northern kingdom usually Israel or Ephraim, depending on the context. And at the time, they were trying to attack, as it were, they were trying to attack Syria and the northern kingdom, Israel, were trying to attack Judah. It was basically in-house fighting going on. And the Israelites had hired Syria to come alongside them to take out their southern brothers and sisters in Judah. And 
King Ahaz, the king of Judah, is starting to freak out a little bit, to use modern language. They're having armies come against them. I mean, it would be a little unnerving if people started amassing at the borders of Kansas City from like Des Moines and, and, and Columbia, and they say, we're going to take over your city. You'd be a little unnerved for a minute, wouldn't you? And so it was with them. And it says in those days, they went to wage war against it. But notice the end of verse one, it says they could not yet mount an attack against it. And God puts within them this desire for them to seek the Lord. And the prophet of the day is the book that's named after. It's Isaiah. Isaiah comes to Ahaz and he says, the Lord said, Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, verse three, and you and Shir Jashabub, your son, at the end of the conduit in the upper pool, and say to Ahaz, verse 4, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. God looks at the situation with all these people trying to take over the southern kingdom, and he tells King Ahaz, don't do what the people are wanting you to do. I have this in hand. I'm going to take care of you. You will be mine. And despite all the powers that may come against them, Syria and Israel are trying to also tempt the big player of the day, Assyria, to get in the fight against Judah, three on one. And God tells through the prophet Isaiah to the king, Ahaz, I got this. Don't worry about it. If you're on my side, that's the best side to be on. Don't let them talk you out of this. And despite all this going on, he says to them, he says, be careful, be quiet. These stumps are firebrands. The son of Ramalia has defies this evil against you, saying, let's go up. And you notice for, through verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, God tells the king Ahaz that their destruction is coming, that somehow, someway, God is going to repel this attack and even prophesies in verse 8 that in 65 years, Ephraim, or northern kingdom of Israel, will be shattered from a people. And we know in about 732 or 730, uh, uh, BC, that the northern kingdom was carried off by Assyria, one of the kingdoms they're trying to get into this fight against their neighbors, Judah. And all this is going on. And you would think that at this point, Ahaz would be okay. But then you pick it up in verse 10. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. And notice what he tells Ahaz to do. Has God ever told you to do this before? He tells Ahaz a very clear directive. God's speaking here, verse 11. Ask a sign of the Lord your God, and let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In very simple language, God says, tell me what you want me to do, Ahaz, and I will do it on your behalf for the defense of your people. Now, if you know your Bible well, and most of you do in this congregation, if you're new to it, you may remember the story even. When God came to Solomon when he was a young king, do you remember what he asked Solomon? Ask anything of me and I'll give it to you, even half the kingdom. And, and, and Solomon could have riches and, and power and authority, but you remember what Solomon prayed for? He prayed for wisdom, didn't he? He prayed for absolute wisdom. And Ahaz, in his rightful place in verse 12, says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord God to the test. That's the right answer, by the way. God's probably not going to come to you and say, genie, genie on a wall, what would you like to do for me? That's not how God works. There's a special case here because it's prophetic. But he says, and who said it? And he said, verse 13, Hear then, O house of David, is this too little for you to weary a man that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Ahaz understood everything about the gospel of Jesus Christ right then and right there, right? <laughs> it's not how that worked. 
I want to remind you that prophecies are often two categories. They're near and they're far. They're near and they're far. And I want you to go to chapter 8. Keep your Bible open. I want you to go to chapter 8, and I want you to see how this was fulfilled within the days of Ahaz before we apply it to how it was fulfilled in the days of Jesus as we move forward. Start in verse 1, chapter 8 and verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, this is Isaiah speaking, the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it common characters belonging to, you ready for this? The longest name in the Bible. If you, if you are looking for a baby name or are suggesting some, here's one. Mahir, Shalal, Hashbash. Did you get that? <laughs> Mahir, Shalal, Hashbash. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of Jer- uh, Jeb-Rakiah, to attest to me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived, this is Isaiah's wife, and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Mahir, Shalal, Hashbaz. For there the boy knows how to cry, my father and mother, the wealth of Damascus, the spoil of Samaria, will be carried before the king of Assyria. Lost yet? What's going on here? Near, far, near, far. The prophecy that there would come one who would be among the people, and Emmanuel is a far prophecy that Ahaz does not understand yet. We know that, and his name is Jesus. Amen? He's God with us, Emmanuel. But the near prophecy was going to be fulfilled as we speak right here. And Isaiah is married, and he gives birth to a son, and they name him all these things. And you notice down in verse 18 of the same chapter, 818, and it says this, It says in 8.18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in the Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. See, Darren, there wasn't a virgin born to King Ahaz or Isaiah and his wife, no, but there was a son born. And the sign of Isaiah's birth and his son being born was a sign for Ahaz to trust that God was going to fulfill his word to protect the kingdom against people who would attack it. That's the near prophecy. We know that history is God's story. History is God's story. That may not make a lot of sense, but the near prophecy was not that a virgin necessarily would be born to Isaiah and his prophetess wife. The prophecy was that there would come a day, there would be a virgin with son, Mary with Jesus. But before that happened, God used a very natural birth to show Ahaz that it's okay to trust in him. Friends, we need to remember that God's word tells us history is God's story. Your life is a testimony that history is God's story. You are here in this church. You are where you are in your job. You are where you are in your family. That God has moved you at the time and places he has for you to be faithful in the context he's called you to be faithful in. Can you imagine King Ahaz being ready to be taken over and God asked him for a sign and it makes no sense and some year, about a year, year and a half later, this comes to bear. And the rest of the story is this. Judah's preserved. They're safe for at least another three, eh, 200 years and then they fall. But because he trusted God, God took care of him. You know, prophecies like that, we were talking about this. Someone mentioned the Rockies. I forget who that was. Carrie, it might have been you. Someone mentioned the Rockies during Sunday school class, how we love walking into those and driving because when you get there, they just are amazing. And prophecy is sometimes like that. 
when you look out from Kansas and you're driving west on I-70 and the, 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 the mountains all look so close, you see all these big peaks shooting up everywhere, and it looks like they're literally like cousins or neighbors right next to each other. And the closer you get to each mountain, the more you realize that those peaks are separated by uh, miles at times between all the different things. King Ahaz was driving from Kansas, and he saw the big picture, sort of. But it wasn't until we got to Jesus' time that they started to see the detail come forth as it was. And friends, I want to remind you that God has given you everything you need right here in this book to live for him. He's given you everything you need to know that he's a faithful, trustworthy God. He's never failed you. He's never failed you yet. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. If he can use a king long ago to bring forth a sign and a prophecy of one to come, you better believe that God is faithful and he will not let anything come to pass except that is for his glory and your good in your life. So that is the history. I hope that makes sense. So what's the next question? Number two, is it real? I mean, is it really real? That's the history, but is all this real? I want you to go back to Isaiah chapter 7. But I want you to also know that in Matthew's gospel, as we look at this in a moment, Matthew's gospel believed with absolute certainty that that prophecy in Isaiah 7.14 was going to come to pass in his day. Isaiah believed it. The early church had no questions. They didn't have to cross their fingers believing it or half believing it. They believed it to their deaths. It was an article of confession. And I want you to go back to chapter 7 and verse 14. I want you to notice that word virgin. You may have a note in your Bible. You may have an asterisk in your Bible. But the wording here, some people just do not like. I mean, your Bible may even say, and I'm going to, I don't want to, I'm not trying to embarrass anyone. Just, does your, is anyone's Bible say young woman in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14? That's actually a really good thing. There's all, does everyone's Bible say virgin, that there will be a virgin? Raise your hand if your Bible says virgin. That should be most people if you have your Bible open. Okay, that's good. Because in fact, what most people don't like about this passage is they argue that the word here, Alma, the Hebrew word Alma, which means virgin, is actually just means young woman. Do you see how this could be troublematic? A young woman does not necessarily mean a young woman is a virgin. Like you can fill those blanks. And so if you're not a Christian and you run across scholars or liberal professors, they'll say, look, the word just means young woman. I'm going to give you a list of things. They're not on the screen, but if you want to write them down, I'm going to give you every instance in the Old Testament where the word Alma is used. And I want you to see that it is clear in the context, especially of Isaiah 9, that it means what it means. It means a virgin. This is important. I'm going to go through these. I'll say them slowly, but I want you to write them down if you're able to. Nine times Old Testament, Alma, virgin. Two instances, Psalm 46.1, Psalm 46.1, and 1 Chronicles 15.20. Psalm 46.1 and 1 Chronicles 15.20. The word is used as a musical term, and we really have no idea how that word got to be used as a musical term, how virgin turns into a musical term. Psalm 46, 1 Chronicles 15.20. There's two of the nine. The next instance is in Psalm 68.25. Psalm 68.25. It speaks of Alma as maidens playing the tambourine. And it's not clear whether... Those maidens in Psalm 68.25 are virgins or not. They're just playing the tambourine. That's three of nine. Proverbs 30.19. Proverbs 30.19. 
speaks of the word Alma or virgin as a way of a man with a maiden. And it may or may not be speaking about a virgin. So that's Proverbs 30, verse 19. Here's a book we don't preach out of a lot of. Song of Songs, chapter 1 and verse 3 says, quote, Song of Songs, 1-3 says, quote, No wonder the maidens love you. And it's speaking very likely of a single unmarried virgin. Song of Psalms 1-3. Here's another Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 8. Alma, the word for virgin, speaks of queens and concubines and beyond number and certainly is speaking about virgins. That's Song of Songs 6, verse 8. How about Genesis 24-43? Genesis 24, 43 speaks of Rebekah being a virgin that, that, that was to be married off to uh, be married off to Isaac. And the last instance used outside of Genesis 24:43 is Exodus 2:8. Exodus 2:8, speaking of Moses' sister Miriam, and it says that she was an unmarried virgin woman. On some occasions, what's the point of all that? On some occasions, when you use this word Alma, Isaiah 7, 14, the word for virgins, on some occasions of those nine, it is unclear what it means. But I want to submit to you that we have believed and we hold and affirm to the highest heavens that in Isaiah 7, 14, despite what Time Magazine says, despite what Dr. So-and-so, who has a doctorate in Old Testament says, it means virgin. You say, Darren, that just shattered my world. Well, it should. Because here's why that's so important. Because when God's word says it means something, God's word means what it says. And if you are not careful, especially this time of year, and you innocently turn on channels that that have some religious documentary, this is the word they're going to go after. So is it real? Isaiah 7, 14, look back at that. Read it again. It says, and your Bible should have something here, a virgin should conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That word there is so important. Like all words, they have a range of meaning. Words aren't just words. Words equal this or that, and context means everything. But I want you to know that when they translated the Hebrew into the Greek, the Hebrew into the Greek, we call that the Septuagint. Many of you have heard that word before. They use the Greek word in Isaiah 7 for parthenos, which immediately means virgin. Even the Old Testament scholars and the Old Testament Jews had no trouble translating Isaiah 7-4, Alma, Hebrew word virgin, to Greek word parthenos, Greek word virgin, meaning the same thing. Would you hold your spot there for a second? Go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And I want you to see this in action. Matthew 1-23. Matthew 1-23. And you know these words well, but they hopefully will have new meaning to you. This is Matthew, the Jewish writer, writing to a Jewish audience, quoting Isaiah 7:14. And notice the word that he uses in the context. Behold, the what? Virgin, not young woman, not musical term, not whatever else. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means. God with us. The point of all this is, is that the Jews in the Old Testament, the Jews in the New Testament, the Christians in the New Testament would say, there is no doubt in our minds, this is a real thing. 
So what does that mean? Andy, if you want to go ahead and put this little slide up next. It means what it means. A true Christian believes all the quote-unquote weird stuff that the world doesn't want to believe, and it is, in fact, a scandal. I believe in a six-literal day of creation. I believe that God actually parted a Red Sea. I believe that a donkey talked to Balaam. I believe that Jonah was swallowed by a big something. I don't know if it was a fish or whatever, but I believe that it happened in the way that it happened. I believe that God actually raised his son from the dead. I believe that when God said, let it be so, it was. I believe in in inexplicable miracles. I believe in a virgin birth, not because I can prove it by science, but because everything about this book has proven reliable, and more so, the God of this book is reliable. Therefore, I believe. I'm not here to tell you anything you don't already know on that, but I want to keep you on guard. Is it real? Yes, it is. And it's okay to say you believe the weird stuff of the Bible, quote, unquote. It's not weird. It's truth. But to the world's eyes, it's weird. Would you hold that high this Christmas season? Christian, you should never have to do this with your faith. You should never have to put your finger, Jesus, I love you, but I'm not sure about that, not sure about it. Look, I'm going to say it again. We said it several weeks ago. It is okay to have doubt sometimes in your faith. It's okay to ask hard questions about your faith. It's okay even not to have all the answers about your faith. But at some point, by God's Spirit, He's going to bring you back to the truth that what He says in here is true from beginning to end. Are there hard passages in here? Yes, they are. Are there easy passages in here? Praise the Lord for those. Those are grace in our times of need. But you need to know to take out anything about the virgin birth is to take away the very foundation of your gospel and everything you believe about Jesus Christ. See, Darren, how many Christians really don't believe that? 65% plus. Guys, I can tell you there were, if you want to go to our Southern Baptist history, even here at Midwestern in the liberal days, moderate days, 70s, 80s, early, mid-90s, there are professors who are required to sign the Baptist faith and message, our statement of faith, but behind the scenes, maybe not physically, but in their minds, they would put their hand behind their back because they really didn't believe those things. Praise God, we have men and women in places of service around the world who are not compromising what we believe. I mean, think about it. The virgin birth is not Santa Claus. Virgin birth is not some believable, unbelievable story about a guy getting on some reindeer, going on the top of a house and go clickety-clack, that going down and dropping off presents. Man, we are so easily as a culture to believe that stuff, but we don't want to believe the stuff about the virgin birth because that pins us down about what we actually are required to do when we believe those things. Be careful. Know your facts and know your truth. Is it real? Yes, it is. The history, it's a near and far prophecy. Last thing is this, why is it important? Why is it important to you? Several years ago, actually it's hard to believe, it's almost been 20 years ago, a man not far from one of our brothers where he grew up in a state in Michigan, there was a man named Rob Bell. And that name is a name that's gone away in infamy in many years gone by. But Rob Bell created what he called NUMA videos, and they were cutting edge, and the the camera angles were cool. He had the cool clothes on. He had the cool pastor glasses. He had the skinny jeans, and he had all the, the likes. And this is what Rob Bell said about the virgin birth. You ready for this? He said... I can't tell you whether the, quote, I can't tell you whether the virgin birth happened or not, but it's not a major issue for me if Jesus had an earthly father named Larry or if the virgin birth concept was incorporated to appeal to followers of religious cults. 
Sorry, Rob Bell, it does matter if there's an earthly father named Larry in the mix. It does matter that Jesus said this is how it would be. And to Rob Bell's discredit, he wrote a book about 12 years ago about why hell is not real. Do you know where Larry, or do you know where Mr. Bell is now? He's out of ministry. He's a devout atheist. He didn't believe anything that he says he believes. Do you see the cracks that have come? How many of y'all, you remember that name, Rob Bell? Some of you remember those? It's been a while but he's been around. Look, his alternatives were to suggest that his mother became pregnant the first time she had relations with a man, and that's, that's crazy, but it not only undermines what we believe, it undermines the very faithfulness and character of God himself. So four things, and uh, we do have these articles. We made a deeper article on this this week for Theology Tuesday. They're out on one of the tables uh, or the uh, giving box out there. Feel free to grab one, but I just grabbed four for this week. Why is it important? Number one, it's important because the church history and tradition highlight and affirm and teach the virgin birth. This isn't just something we pulled out to get people to sit in pews and feel sentimental at Christmas time. We acknowledge the fallibility of the church, and we acknowledge that tradition is not always a good thing, but through the centuries, one thing has always been held true, is that Jesus is who he said he was, and he came in the way God said he would come. And so, friends, I want you to know that God uses history as his story to affirm what we already believe to be true. And I want you to know that there's no one in church history who is considered to be faithful to the Scriptures that has ever denied the virgin birth. Oh, come let us adore him, not scrutinize him, because that is our Savior. Number two is this. It's not only important because it's affirmed in Christian teaching and history, but it's also important because it portrayed Mary as a virgin, the gospel writers did, when she conceived Jesus. So if they lied about her being a virgin and they lied about the connection to the Old Testament, what else are they going to lie about? Do you see how this could easily snowball quickly? It's a slippery slope. The gospels present the birth not as a myth or an imitation, but an account of actual historical fact. And if the virgin birth were false, everything you read about Jesus in the gospel should be undermined. You say, Darren, are there any modern denominations that deny the virgin birth? Not outright, but there are many mainline denominations who will tell you it's not important to your faith because we're not sure it actually happened. You can talk to me afterwards for names and places. I'm not here to shoot everything in the barrel, so to speak, but you need to know that if someone questions the virgin birth, you ought to question whatever else they're feeding you. No matter how good it makes you feel, no matter how uh, jazzy their little pithy statements are, no matter how social media presents their image with their quote on it and their smiley face, if they're denying the virgin birth, they're denying the very truth that the gospel writers affirmed as historical. Number three is this. The virgin birth also serves as a crucial demonstration of both the humanity and divinity of Jesus. He is truly God, and he is truly man. He had to be God because only God could die in the place of sinners to take on the wrath that the Father had. But he had to be man because he had to be like us and die on the cross in such a way that he would take on the punishment that we deserve. He had to be man. He had to be God. The virgin birth affirms both. Again, he is not some two-in-one conditioner in shampoo or half and half or half in this. Or uh, some of you like to do a quick trip. You get a little bit of this drink and a little bit of that drink, and, and you mix it all together, and you just come up with this great thing. The virgin birth affirms that Jesus is who he said he was. He is God, Emmanuel, 
but he's the God who's also with us. Praise God for that, amen? The last thing is this, and we'll close. The virgin birth is essential because it shows that Jesus did not inherit the sin of Adam's race. Did not inherit the sin of Adam's race. That's good news, guys. Sin came through Adam, but the grace and truth and knowledge of the gospel came through Jesus Christ. Because Christ was not born of an earthly father, the sin which Adam is representative of does not pass on to him. I asked our Sunday school class, what happened after man, uh, or what are we full of and what is God not full of? And everybody all at once said, sin, without a doubt, sin. Christ walked on this earth and lived a perfect life. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. You say, Darren, does that mean that we believe Mary was a virgin forever? No, we don't believe that. We believe the gospels speak of other brothers and sisters of Jesus, including Jude, one of those, the very last writers of the gospels, or writers of the epistles before Revelation, one of his half-brothers. But friends, I want you to know, the Bible presents facts because it speaks facts. We don't have to be ashamed of it. We don't have to be weirded out by it. It's okay if you have doubts at times. I am okay with the mystery of the Trinity. I'm okay with the mystery how God can send Jesus to be truly God and truly man. How does all that work? I'm okay with that. That's not blind faith. That's not using a crutch to stand on. That's not being a backwoods, Bible-believing evangelical that votes a certain way and acts a certain way. If you believe the virgin birth, among many other things, you are believing what God said. And if God says it, I certainly always want to believe it. Let's join together in prayer as we close out today. Father, thank you so much for the simple reminder today that you provide faithfulness in every interaction you have with us. As one of our pastors often quotes without the reference, he so often says, while we were faithless, you were faithful. Father, I think that everyone in this room knows that you have kept your promises. When people have not, when churches have not always been as faithful as they need to be, or denominations, or whatever it is, your truth has always been there. There's always been a remnant. There's always been a group of people who affirm to the highest heavens everything your word says. The word we believe that's without error, that's inspired, that's sufficient, that's relevant, that is authoritative, because your word says it, we believe it. Not blindly, Lord, because you've unscaled our eyes. We see now as that man in John 9, I was blind, but now I see. So, Father, as we celebrate this Christmas season, if there's any in this room that have not known Christ, I pray that it would start with the simple fact that they need you. They need your son as their savior. They've sinned, but praise God, there's a savior. For those in this room who, who know Christ, who've come to the truth of Christ, I pray that the culture around them, around all of us, would not pressure us so much, Lord, that we cave in to believing things that we know that are not true. Shore us up, Lord. Encourage us. For many, this time of year is very difficult for the loss of loved ones and uh, people we've not seen that we used to see. And Lord, we need your grace there so much. Just as we believe those who've passed with Christ are in heaven now, so we believe, Lord, that you sent forth your son, born of a virgin, born under the law, at just the right time to give your life for us. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lord, we love you so much. 
We sing this last song and do business in a little bit. May you be glorified. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.